This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, you're listening to Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Matt Chorley's still away, so Patrick Maguire here with you in his absence. Today we're talking levelling up and whether it's all over under a new Prime Minister. But first, our columnist panel. No Danny Finkelstein this week, so it's David Aronovich and Hugo Rifkin. The Columnists on Times Radio. It's a Tuesday, but no Finkelvich. Danny Finkelstein, I think, is still trying to, busy trying to win the Premier League for Chelsea. So instead, we've got Hugo Rifkin. Morgan Hugo. Good morning. Rifkovich, does that work? Rifkovich. Yeah, I think so. I like that. I like that a lot. And this is a uh, this is a duo that might get us all sanctioned by Vladimir Putin. It's prisoner of conscience, David Aronovich. Morning, David. Yeah, I think Erekind is good. It sounds like a band, doesn't it? Like a kind of, kind of a, 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 an early heavy metalish type band from the well, early seventies. Either that. Surely it's a very small chocolate bar. Yeah, I was going to say. I, I was going to say a minor <laughs> member of the Skywalker clan, actually. Uh, you know, but uh, yeah, we'll work. We'll work on it. We'll work on it. If Danny is going to be uh, Danny's going to be moonlighting for an extended period, I think we might have to work on a new portmanteau. But uh, David, I really wanted to get your view. How how is it the morning after the sanction before? Well, I I was been waiting for quite a long time. I mean, uh, I've, I've, every time they've sanctioned a few people, I thought, well, I've been really horrible about Vladimir Putin for ages now. So why haven't I been sanctioned? Uh, um, uh, even so, it's quite nice to be in the same list as Keir Starmer and David Cameron. Um, I'm not quite so sure about being in the same list as Piers Morgan, to be frank, um, uh, because I honestly like to think that I am a significantly worse gadfly for Pier- for Vladimir Putin than Piers Morgan would would ever. Well, be. Piers is going to have to take um, a long, hard look in the mirror and ask why it took so long uh, if he's on the same list as you, David, isn't he? He, he he really is, yeah. You know, he really is, and, and and he's a big man for such comparisons, actually. So uh, so he probably has already thought it through. And, and Hugo, your dad is on the list, of course. Uh, so you know, are you hoping that the status is hereditary and we can get an all all sanctioned Times columnist panel going? Well, he was he was on the list before it was cool. He was put on the list back in the twenty fifteen. He's just he's a sort of hipster banny from twenty fifteen. He's a hipster banny from Russia before before even the invasion. And he you know he is he is somewhat inclined to gloat about it. So I am slightly livid that not to be on this list. I'm wondering what more I can do. Well, you know, hopefully hopefully that it is uh, hopefully it is hereditary status. Um, 
But you know, let's uh, let's uh, let's move on to uh, the big news from last night, um, which is Penny Mordaunt's shock endorsement <laughs> of Liz Truss. I can't believe that Penny Mordaunt has chosen this moment in the race to take a brave, brave stand and throw her weight behind the clear front runner. Can you, David? Um, I had a fantasy last night, and it was simply this. Um, after Ben Wallace and Penny Mordaunt and Nadim Zahawi um, have all decided, uh, and Tim, Tom Tugendhat have all decided, that late on in the contest, Liz Truss embodies all the true conservative values and low taxes that they have somehow not been calling for from Rishi Sunak over the years, but have been feeling in their interior hearts, etc., wouldn't it be fabulous after they have come out for Liz Truss in this way if Rishi Sunak won? <laughs> uh, and they all didn't get cabinet jobs as a consequence. And they, all those cabinet jobs went to people we've scarcely even heard of who didn't suddenly find it necessary to uh, endorse the person who everybody else thinks is going to win. It would be, it, it, it's, it would be a moment of justice, I think. Well, because, I, I, you know, the, something I've noticed when I, I'm interviewing and, and chatting to Tory MPs now, even those who are well-known Rishi fans, have been Rishi fans since day one, who I've you know, spoken to many times and they say, I don't like Liz, uh, Liz is going to be a disaster for the country. You speak to them on air now or you know, even over a coffee and they say, yes, you know, Rishi is great. He's got the, these great policy offers. Then they say, but of course, you know, I've always respected Liz. I've always liked Liz. <laughs> you know, I agree with what Liz says on tax. She's a true Tory. <laughs> But, you know, when you look at people, Hugo, like Tom Tugendhat, who just two weeks ago was on stage with the rest of them, trying to pitch himself as a as a fresh start, saying the cabinet were all uniquely tainted and that Boris Johnson loyalists needed to take a long, hard look in the mirror. It's pretty surreal, isn't it? And pretty, you know, you can see why people have such a such a dim view of politicians because, you know, once yeah. the cabinet are taking lumps out of each other and now they're all endorsing people who two weeks ago they said were unfit for office. It's, I mean, it's worse than surreal. It's like, do, do they think we can't see them? Is that what's going? On? I mean, you've got, it's been, Tom Tugendhat was was the that was a blow because he's kind of like, he's the heir to the sort of Rory Stewart reasonable reasonableness tradition, mm. right, isn't he? And when he's suddenly, like, oh no, actually Liz Truss is the one. It's like, what what's with these people? Like they've they've spent weeks pointing out. I mean, they've been calling her, she's a, she's a nutter, she's unstable, she's unsuitable, she's a lightweight, and I support her wholeheartedly. It's like it's also <laughs> it's also kind of exactly what they all did, of course, with Boris Johnson. Where they all lined up to go, this would be, this would just be absurd. This would be a disaster for the country. This would be, yes, I'm really delighted to serve in this government. You know, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of beyond shameless. It's like it's mad, is what it is. And you think the extent to which they denounce her beforehand and then champion her afterwards. Like at least one half of this equation has to be insincere, surely. At least yeah. one half, perhaps both. <laughs> uh, it, it does. It does remind me a bit of uh, of some of the things because obviously the the left of Labour is very very angry with Keir Starmer. And what they're saying is he broke his pledges because he made these pledges to the party about what he'd be and he isn't being it he has answers to some of those and he doesn't have to others and you say oh yeah but the thing you're not getting cross about was him going to the electorate in 2019 and suggesting that Jeremy Corbyn might in his view make a good prime minister <laughs> <laughs> you're not complaining about that and yet that was if anything the biggest and most momentous fib of the entire lot because he never thought Jeremy Corbyn could be a decent prime minister in fact he'd only go in the 2019 election saying that in the certain knowledge that 
that he wouldn't be elected. And it's, it's in keeping with it's in keeping with how they're all behaving throughout this contest. I mean, it's, it's this fantastic line in the reporting this morning in, in the Times of both Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak competing to denounce the Treasury, of which they were both in charge, pretty much. You know, he was Chancellor and she was Chief Secretary. It's like, who do they think the yeah. Treasury is? It's they were the Treasury. They are denouncing what they did. And, I mean, wow. people just reverse their own positions just on a on a, on a, on a sentence. And, and, and I mean, I, I, you don't want to get too sort of too pious about it. But when, when people think politics is full of nonsense and, 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 and charlatans, this is why. Um, I liked today that uh, that Rhys Mogg was saying that actually we should cut down on civil servants by automating them. Uh, and I thought, <laughs> well, actually, uh, turn it around a bit. There's a pretty good argument for automating ministers. I mean, well, they've already done it with him, haven't kind they? Of decent, well, well, <laughs> well, yeah, he has his own very uh, particular programme, though. I mean, I'm just not... It'd be it's, quite it's, easy to know, code, Jacob Rees-Mogg. You just have to make sure you inputted all the right Latin vocabulary into the, into the, into the script. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, his responses are often so predictable to any given story. I think it'd be, you know, even Charles Babbage, I think. Well, maybe, you know, he's, that's, that's, his, uh, that's his sort of cultural reference, isn't it, Charles Babbage? He's a uh, programme with clockwork and steam. Yeah, and- Ancient Victorian doll possessed by a demon. Yeah, that would that would work. Um, uh, are you trying to tell me he speaks Babbage? <laughs> is, that, is that what it your is? Your words, your words, David. Your words, David. Not mine. It's into the interesting point you make about Jeremy Corbyn there, because obviously Labour are going to fall over themselves to pin the Johnson era on either winner. But the point you make about Keir Starmer saying Jeremy Corbyn is my best mate, he's so he's such a great friend, I won't you know demean him by giving him a rating out of ten. You know I'm gonna uh, keep his policy pledges. It's very easy for whoever wins to chuck that back at the Labour Party, isn't it? It it, it is, but the problem is um, uh, in the in the in the land of political forgetting. I mean, it is a problem for Labour, but it's nothing like as big a problem as if you've been in government for. Mm. 14 years and, and people are getting poorer yeah so i think they i think i think i think they can probably afford to wear that i mean it's the kind of thing that if uh, uh, during election um uh, Keir Starmer goes on with an andrew neil or andrew neil equivalent who's asking that kind of question that's the kind of thing that could be really awkward <laughs> you know he might have a kind of glib answer for everything else but he surely ain't got an answer for that one what do you think hugo yeah, I mean, I think it will it will, it will it will continually come back to bite. I mean, I think that the whole legacy of this contest has been much more damaging. Well, I was going to say it's been much more damaging for the Conservatives than they realise, but then it is coming on the back of the legacy of quite a lot of other stuff. So maybe, maybe, maybe when you sort of hit hit the bottom, you just you just kind of stay of it, stay at it. But I mean, it, it I think it's cost them all in a in a really really bad light with the the, the extent to which they're prepared to reverse previous positions and attack each other, particularly because when they start attacking each other, that's when everyone agrees with them. And then they sort yeah. of reverse. So I, 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 I think there'll, there'll be a legacy to this. I think. Then there was there was that moment this week when Rishi Sunak, who um, we should remind ourselves was until very recently Chancellor of the Exchequer, was saying that Liz Truss was endorsing policies on business uh, on business rates which had failed over the course of ten years. And he thought, excuse me a moment, <laughs> you have just casually let slip that one of the major policies that you had in government and that you took over and, and operated was a failure and that everybody like you knew it over those years. And, and you've just done that in the course of launching an attack on your on your rival for the leadership. Um, that's not really something which, I, you know, if the electorate generally become aware of it, is going to help you. Hugo, I mean, we're talking about political forgetting. 
Uh, one mm. thing you wanted to talk about was whether our phones are making us stupid and forgetful. <laughs> uh, yes. Are you yes or no? Because I'm I'm always torn on this as someone who spends about whose screen time is about you know the length of das boot every day. Um, you know about two das boots a day. I think uh, is it making you stupid? Your phone. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm, I'm delighted to learn from the Times today, which I read on my phone, that in fact it isn't. Like, I think generally we've got a, a, a tendency to to not quite focus on the, the the huge changes that technology has caused to how we function as people. We don't generally focus on it. And then when we do focus on it, we tend to be entirely negative about it. And, it, and it's not. Like, I think we can, well, you probably can't, you're too young, but I'm sure David and I can remember math teachers saying, well, you won't carry around a calculator every day when you grow up, to which one I can even say, <laughs> well, well, I do, yeah. actually. So stuff that. But there is this understandable fear that because we use our smartphones for so much, stuff we used to remember things and now we don't and that feels anecdotally true i know i know pretty well i can recite phone numbers that i learned pre-2000 and virtually none post-2000 because you just don't bother remembering this stuff and there's a tendency to think that we're degrading it like like in like in wally if you've ever seen that the, the, the mm. pixar film the passengers on the spaceship their muscles all atrophy because they zoom around on buggies for generations and you think are we doing this to our brains because we're getting helped too much by technology but according to a study today from ucl the answer is a pleasing no because they they basically they, they did this complicated test where they got people to to remember stuff using their smartphones and not using their smartphones and it turns out if you use your smartphone or other technology to rem remember stuff you use that to remember the important stuff and you thus have more room in your brain for the less important stuff, so you're expanding your capacity. It's like inserting a memory card into your own, own head, like we will be doing soon, we have learned with Jacob Rees-Mogg. Uh, David, just briefly, has your phone made you stupider? No, it's so predictable that this would turn out to be nonsense. Um, it's just a, you know, one of the kind of classic that goes right the way back to reading books will make you stupid because we used to tell stories and remember them by the fireside <laughs> and now you've got books and you read from them etc it's the same thing that happens every single time what tells you you're a stupid society is that sensible people discuss love island that's what tells you you're a stupid society <laughs> And you can, of course, read Hugo and David in The Times every week. Now, for our big thing, we discuss whether levelling up is dead under a new Prime Minister. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to Patrick McGuire here with the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. 
Now, Boris Johnson's 2019 landslide was a vote for lots of things. It was a vote to get Brexit done, it was a vote to make Boris Johnson Prime Minister, and it was a vote to make sure Jeremy Corbyn wasn't in number 10. But it was also a vote for a manifesto that promised to level up parts of Britain that had put their faith in the Tories for the first time, the coalfields and industrial towns of the north. Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss were at the heart of that government until a couple of weeks ago, but as they tour the south and fight over tax cuts and deregulation, are they at risk of forgetting the seats that put them there? Well, with just two years to go until the next general election, Tory MPs are getting tetchy. Both candidates, though, insist that they'll deliver levelling up. This was Sunak at a debate last week. I grew up in Southampton, I was saying, and now I represent a rural seat in North Yorkshire, where Teesside is my back door. And I've seen the amazing change that I've helped to deliver in a place like that, delivering a freeport that's attracted jobs and investment post-Brexit to an area with new industries like carbon capture and storage and vaccine manufacturing. And I think we can bring that same sense of optimism, excitement and opportunity across the country, because that's what levelling up should mean. It should mean that no matter where you grow up, you have fantastic opportunities to fulfil your potential, but you also have enormous pride in the place that you call home. Trust, meanwhile, told last night's hustings in Exeter that levelling up should target rural areas in the south and west and not just the fabled Red Wall. I grew up in Southampton, I was saying, and now I represent a rural seat in North Yorkshire where Teesside is my back door. And I've seen the amazing change that I've helped to deliver in a place like that. Delivering... That is not Liz Truss, of course, that's Rishi Sunak. This is Liz Truss. No, we don't have Liz Truss. That's unfortunate. But, you know, you can get the idea. She wants levelling up to target the South and West as well as the Red Wall. But is that enough? Is levelling up dead? Is that agenda that was at the heart of Boris Johnson's government until Covid and Partygate derailed it all? Is that still going to be at the heart of the next Prime Minister's manifesto? That's the question I put to Ben Houchin, the Tory mayor of the Tees Valley, and perhaps the most powerful elected Conservative in the North, earlier today. I asked him whether this contest was the beginning of the end for the agenda that turned areas like his blue. I hope not. Um, and given that both leadership contenders have signed up to the pledge that I put out there, which was a, a minimum uh, of what I think is required on levelling up, then hopefully it will still remain top of the agenda. But um, one of the things that I have seen through the leadership contest is that a lot of the talk and a lot of the um, even a lot of the hustings have focused very much more around things like uh, tax cuts than they have about the levelling up agenda, which as you and I both know, was one of the things that delivered that big majority back in 2019 for Boris Johnson and also in areas that haven't voted Conservative um, ever before in some instances. So I do have a worry, but I'm confident that both do understand levelling up and will hopefully keep to the promises that it will remain top of the agenda. And as you've just alluded to, you know the part of the world where voters put their faith in the Conservative Party for the first time better than perhaps any elected Conservative politician. And you were one of the men... Uh, and women who who went there first, indeed, in 2017. Is there a sense among voters in your patch and beyond now, from what you pick up when you're out and about, that they want to see delivery? There's a sense we put our faith in the Conservative Party, we put our faith in Boris, and there isn't very much to show for it. Is that a fair assessment of where some people are at? Uh, well, I think lots of people are concerned about what the next government is going to be. I mean, there's still a huge amount of admiration for Boris Johnson in places like Teesside that I represent. Um, and there is, you know, not an insignificant number of people that would rather Boris Johnson was staying as prime minister because while um, he, had his, he had his flaws that we don't need to necessarily go over today, um, people still understood that he got what it was about trying to level up the country, especially in the areas that voted for us for the first time. And I think, to be fair, the government can be forgiven for the fact that almost immediately after the 2019 election, there was a 
two-year global pandemic that obviously put paid to the ability for the government to be able to um, get on with the plans, not just of levelling up, but its other manifesto commitments as well. But ultimately, I keep saying it, and I'll keep saying it until somebody listens to me, the next general election, I do think, in large part, will be decided um, on whether people have seen or feel that levelling up is being progressed. I mean, levelling up is not going to finish in the next two or three years, but people need to see a start of it, right? And Teesside's a great example, probably one of the only examples where we can genuinely show real levelling up has started. Um, and we need to do that across much more of the red wall areas, particularly across the north of England, because people don't really care about the detail of politics. What they care about is outcomes. And what they care about is do their high streets feel different? Does their family feel like they have opportunities? Do their kids have a future in their local communities? And at the minute, that has had limited effect uh, since the 2019 election, largely, like I say, because of some of the impacts since then. But that's the thing that will be judged upon. And like I say, unless the two candidates really get to grips with that, then we're at a significant risk of losing the next general election entirely. Well, you've mentioned something that's dominated the campaign, and that's tax cuts. There's often a very simplistic binary drawn, particularly from hacks like me in Westminster who think, well, Southern Tories want to cut and deregulate and Northern Tories are all sort of big state interventionists who want to revive deindustrialised areas with government cash. I mean, you'd be the first to say it's not that simple. But what role do big sweeping tax cuts like that proposed by Liz Truss have in levelling up? Do you think those two visions are easily reconciled, you know, levelling up tomorrow and also massive tax cuts tomorrow? Well, you're absolutely right. Lots of people mischaracterise me as a, a big state conservative because, um, I mean, one of the things that I did stand on was saving our local airport, which in effect we've taken into public ownership. Now, at the same time as that, I think it's fair to say that we've been a champion of the government's biggest probably free market policy in free ports as well. So you're absolutely right. Everything in politics is too black and white these days. There's often a, a, a large amount of grey um, where the reality often sits. And I think the oversimplification of talking about tax cuts is tax cuts are great, right? I mean, I am a conservative. I think that tax cuts, we should be allowing people to have more money to decide for themselves how to spend that money. But ultimately, if we're also going to promise people that levelling up is going to stay top of the agenda and we're going to spend huge amounts of money on better infrastructure, on various other things that the two candidates have pledged during the leadership election, that has to be paid for. And, you know, that then decides the tax cuts seem to be coming... Um, sorry, they seem to be putting the cart before the horse, really. Because ultimately, if you want to spend a lot of public money, that's fine, as long as you have the ability to raise it. Now, there is an argument to say if you cut taxes, you can actually increase the amount of money that you bring into the exchequer. And that has been seen by the reduction of the corporation tax uh, down to 19%, which we've actually seen the actual amount taken in corporation taxes has grown. So there is an argument for that. But it's not as simple just to say we're going to cut taxes, because it depends on the policy framework that you're working to. And at the minute, I think a lot of that detailed policy framework about what you are going to spend, what you're going to save, and what the policy envelope looks like is pretty threadbare at the minute. And until you've filled that out, how we can talk about whether we're going to cut taxes, maintain taxes, or put them up, seems like we're putting it um, the wrong way around. Well, the next Prime Minister will have just over two years to convince voters in areas like yours, like the Tees Valley, like the seats, uh, the parliamentary seats your mayoralty contains that they do have the right policies to push through with levelling up. Obviously, you've got your five pledges, which we can talk about. But what do the next Prime Minister's first 100 days have to look like to make sure levelling up is a success? You know, first 100 days and beyond, obviously. Well, they need to get the skates on because we talk about two years, but it's not two years, is it really? Because by the Prime Minister, by the time the next Prime Minister is appointed, 
Um, they're going to have to select their own administration. They're going to have to get up and running. They're going to have to understand um, the levers of government and try to affect that change. So that 100 days is really crucial, that first three months in getting that right. Because actually, when you come out of that first three months, all of a sudden, you've got, uh, you know, one and a half, one and three quarter years left. We all know that probably six months before the general election, everything's going to go into um, campaign mode. So really, you've got just over a year to affect any real change. And you can only use that year effectively if you use that first three months effectively to put the right people in the right place and also have a very focused delivery framework for what you're going to implement over that 12-month period. And I don't mean deliver in full, because we all know a lot of the big infrastructure projects in particular take many years to complete, but we need some spades in the ground and people need to see some demonstrable change. And that's very, very challenging for anybody in two years, which in reality, like I said, is actually just over a year. Uh, and so it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough, whoever is the prime minister, because they don't have the time to bed in try and change the system and then take two, three, four years until the next general election to be able to say to people that they've affected real change. And what is it the voters need to see? Is it spades in the ground? Is it advertising hoardings on their high street saying, we're renovating this, we're levelling up cash? Is it proof that money is going for the exchequer into their local area, even if things aren't finished? Well, the announcement of big pots of money are great and people see that as a relatively positive thing, but a number's just a number, right? And they hear politicians announce large sums of money every day on the TV, but they don't necessarily understand how that translates to them because they don't see it in their everyday life. So I think hoarding saying we're going to give this high street more cash is not um, terrible, but it's not ideal. I think spades in the ground is important. People need to physically see physical things changing, whether that's upgrading of public transport, railway stations, new offices, new buildings being created because people are investing, new jobs being created. You know, that doesn't have to be finished. People don't need to see that the whole of the levelling up agenda, for instance, in Teesside or anywhere else in the north of England is complete within the next two years. But they need to see that it's transitioning from this great idea that everybody loves and buys into, because actually the principle you can't really disagree with, but they see it becoming a deliverable reality for them. And that means them being able to feel in some way that that is a positive for them. Now, that might be that physical infrastructure. So when they're walking down their street or their high street, they can physically see and smell and touch the change that's happening. Or it may be that they feel like they can see opportunities that you know they have friends or family or children who are getting job opportunities that they didn't get before, where they can live and stay in the local area rather than having to move away. So it has to be tangible to people. Just saying that we're reinforcing, levelling up, and we're going to commit more money or more tax cuts that, go, that is going to unleash something is great in principle, but I don't think people will buy that unless they can see at least the first few steps towards the demonstrable delivery of that, that policy. And, and areas like yours, Ben Hatchin, have a somewhat complicated relationship with the Conservative Party in its past. Yes, they are or were voting Conservative in large numbers in 2019. They voted for Brexit in part due to the uh, chronic underinvestment and lack of opportunity under successive governments. But when you hear both candidates try and outbid each other to be the most Thatcherite candidate and invoke that often controversial past leader. How do you, how do you think that goes down in seats that not, aren't necessarily entirely reconciled to Mrs Thatcher's legacy despite voting Tory now? It just seems a little bit too much of a throwback. I mean, I probably um, betray myself on my age here, uh, Patrick, but I'm, I'm 35, so um, I was born in 1986. I don't remember anything of um, Thatcher's government myself. And, you know, she did some fantastic things and she did some things that weren't so fantastic. And particularly for an area like ours in Teesside, um, I think the long term benefit of what she did was the right thing. But actually, the short term impact on communities 
which there wasn't appreciated at the time with the decline of some major industries, is something that I hope any politician of any colour learns from in the future, because it's all very well and good looking at the academic of it, but actually you've got to look at real people's lives and communities and how they're impacted. So I'm not really sure how it's going to play out. I don't necessarily think it's, it's a tune that will go down immediately well, but at the same time, I also think that there's a long-term trend and move away from the Labour Party, and there has been since the early 2000s in places like the Northeast. And that's largely less because of the rhetoric, but more because of the decline of nationalised, um, unionised industries, certainly big paternalistic industries like mining and steelmaking, etc. We've got more of a, a more modern, diverse economy in the Northeast that we, we probably didn't have compared to other parts of the country for many, many years. You know, we've got future generations, which I include myself in that, that don't necessarily have that affinity to the paternalistic industries and the Labour Party of the 60s and 70s. And so that will, I think, continue to play a role. And so people won't flock back to the Labour Party. And we're not seeing that even now with the troubles that the government are having uh, with obviously Partygate, Boris Johnson, and now the leadership contest. That's just not coming through. What it is now is more competitive. Now, is the sounding of talking about Margaret Thatcher every day the right thing for the leadership contenders to do? It wouldn't be something that I would do, but I don't think that will necessarily turn everybody off. I just think what people are starting to see in the Northeast is that it's more competitive rather than automatically being a one-party state. And just looking ahead, Ben Houchin, are you still confident that Rishi Sunak is the right man for the job? I do think Rishi is the right man for the job, albeit Liz is a fantastic candidate as well. I mean, Liz has done a huge amount for, for us and she's been very supportive of things like the Freeport policy. But, you know, Rishi Sunak came up with the Freeport policy that we delivered in Teesside. So I'm very parochially quite happy because whoever is prime minister, I'm confident that we will continue to get the support and the help that we need in places like Teesside. But I do think there is this uh, additional element that, you know, you could argue that he's being slightly... Um, too grown up about these things in a in a political contest but you know the reality of having to manage the books having to be able to balance the expenditure um and also provide for the income that needs to come in i think rishi sunak is is absolutely the right person for the job and also i think he's the right person for the job because i've worked with, closely with rishi for the last four or five years now i've seen him when he was a backbench mp i see how hard he works i just see his absolute grip on the minute detail which is what i think we need in a prime minister especially after the last few years that we've been through. I think he would be a very calm hand on the tiller. Um, but like I say, we're in a fortunate position in Teesside that whoever wins, we're going to be in a, a pretty healthy position. That was Ben Houchin there, Mayor of the Tees Valley, warning that there's a real risk of the next Tory leader losing the next election without tangible progress on the levelling up agenda. He's backing Rishi Sunak, of course, but not all Tory mayors are of the same mind. In Birmingham, Andy Street, the Mayor of the West Midlands, endorsed Liz Truss this morning. He said the Foreign Secretary was committed to levelling up and would use her new fiscal freedoms to allow the regions to spend their cash how they liked, away from the prying eyes of the Treasury. But what do the MPs, whose jobs are on the line the next election, think? Earlier, I asked Alex Stafford, the Tory MP for Rother Valley in South Yorkshire. He's backing trust too. But how can he reconcile her born-again Thatcherism and tax cuts with the needs of seats like his? Well, it's a mixture of things. I always describe levelling up as more of like sort of a humanitarian, humanitarian aid after a disaster. You need the short-term uh, help, but then you need the long-term help as well. So the short-term, when you have a sort of a disaster where the helicopters are flown in with the food, that is things like a levelling up fund, which is that short, sharp burst of cash to really improve the high street. So at the moment, there's a, a levelling up fund bid for Rother Valley out for our main high street from Dillington. But also that is a long-term solution. You can only get that improvement if you tackle some of the long-term issues, and one of which uh, is education as well. We need to get ed education back on track. 
We need to make sure that things like the cost of child care comes down. We need to have more high-performing schools. And that really is at the heart of living up. And that's what, what I believe Liz will really uh, tackle and really get to grip on. Because there's no point just injecting cash into an area. You just have those long-term building blocks to make things go better in the long term. Do you worry, though, that whoever wins won't have enough time to deliver? Because that's the word that's looming large over this contest, isn't it? Delivery. And it's not entirely the government's fault, of course. On the straight off the back of that massive election within 2019, we had two, a two-year-long pandemic. We've had a government that's been distracted by self-inflicted uh, wounds in, in number 10. Really, whoever wins will have just north of a year. That's how Ben Houch in the Mayor of the Tees Valley puts it, just over a year to deliver anything. Do you think that's enough time? Well, I think levelling up is a process. It's not going to be right. We've got to achieve this by 2024 and that, that's it, levelling up over. It should be a process. And we know it's going to take a long time to actually bring up the standards of areas like mine, Rother Valley, North of England, to uh, areas in the south. But is that process, we, it's supposed to be started. We just need a bit more impetus, a little speed of that process, which I believe Liz will bring. But then I think residents and constituents will see that we are making moves in the right direction. We're starting that process and we are going to get the solve. We can't solve levelling up overnight. What did you think then of Liz Truss's Whitehall proposals this morning? Because a big plank of those was to cut the salaries of civil servants working outside of London. Surely that cuts across levelling up if you are you know, putting public sector workers in the north out of pocket. Well, I think what actually Liz was saying was actually cutting down a sort of war on waste with Whitehall, was grappling sort of various projects like sort of diversity, inclusion, things that don't actually give value for money. Because it's not proper levelling up if, if public money is being wasted. What we want to do is actually put more money in people's pockets and more impetus so that we create the jobs and the growth. And I very much believe by creating the jobs in the area, especially like mine, the private sector jobs, in partnership with the government, that we can deliver those long-term levelling up changes that we need. And you say your constituency in Rother Valley, uh, you know, South Yorkshire, former mining area, has got 11 million quid. What can you point to your constituents, point out on the high street and around town and say, look, that wasn't there in 2019 or earlier and you've got it now? What, what has levelling up given your constituency that it didn't have before? Well, well, I'll give you an example. Maltby, we have uh, a £6 million coming, which will be the shovels in the ground uh, this October, and we're done by 20, uh, April 2024. A new uh, skills and apprenticeship college at Maltby Academy, taking the old grammar school, derelict building, turning it into a place where we can learn skills, learn new jobs. Point to a £1 million new skills village at Gulliver's Valley, which can create uh, jobs so people can actually get the skills to get better jobs. And that, to me, is at the heart of levelling up, getting people the tools, giving people the ability to get those good jobs out there and attract the new jobs in. A lot of your colleagues in the South are anxious about the impact of levelling up on their electoral prospects and whether it's splitting the Tory coalition in two. And clearly, lots of people at the top of both leadership campaigns are anxious about voters in the South too. Do you worry that that will also detract from whatever emphasis the next leader puts on levelling up if they are facing a revolt of traditional Tory voters in the shires and they'll forget about voters like yours? Well, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. First of all, levelling up doesn't just apply to northern seats like mine. There's areas down in the south, and Midlands, uh, the eastern regions, which also need sort of levelling up. They are sort of le left behind, deprived areas. We need to improve all those areas. But I don't think we're going to leave any conservative, traditional or not conservative behind. After all, I argue quite a lot of 
constituents in my seat are small C conservatives. They care about the value for money. They care, they care about the armed forces. They love their country. Small C conservative values. They just haven't had a chance to vote conservative until 2019. So I think the sort of same messages ring out across Rother Valley as they do down uh, down south as well. And and Alex, do you ever worry about losing your seat when you look at the polls? When you look at um, the the confusion perhaps sometimes around what levelling up will look like heading on because the vote in 2019 was for lots of things. It was a vote for Boris Johnson, it was a vote for Brexit, it was a vote against Jeremy Corbyn, but it was also recognition that seats like, your, like yours had got a raw deal from successive governments. Do you ever worry that it might be too little, too late and that you might be out on your ear after one term in Parliament? Well, uh, who knows what 2024 will bring, but I think the most important thing is that regardless of whether I win or lose, at the next election, I can look back and say, I have achieved the best for Rother Valley. I've got the most for Rother Valley. And I put in the building blocks to having greater stuff going forward. And I think that's really happened. And I think under Liz Truss as our new prime minister, I think that will, that will definitely increase. But on the actual polls, I say, this is the polls at the moment are snapshot in time. The real poll matters in a, in a couple of years' time. And who knows where we'll be a year ahead, a year ago, the Conservatives were winning places like Hartlepool <clears throat> and we were riding high still. So a lot can change very quickly. I also think if Liz becomes leader, I think the polls will change very quickly, again, in the Conservative favour. And the question we're posing today, Alex Stafford, just to finish, is levelling up dead, yes or no? Absolutely not. Well, that was the Tory MP for Rother Valley in South Yorkshire, Alex Stafford. Ben Houchen, by the way, has said this morning on that civil service pay announcement of Liz Trusses that I've just been speaking about with Alex Stafford. Uh, ben Houchen describes that as a ticking time bomb set by Team Trust that will explode ahead of the next general election. Meanwhile, Richard Holden, who's the Tory MP for North West Durham and he's backing Sunak, has just tweeted, the only way Liz Trust could get to £8.8 .8 billion a year in pay cuts is by cutting the pay of doctors and nurses, police and prison officers, teachers and TAs in Cornwall to Cambridgeshire to the Cotswolds to County Durham. It would kill levelling up. A recent poll conducted by the centre-right think tank Onward found that almost all of Boris Johnson's of all of Boris Johnson's 2019 manifesto pledges, levelling up is the one voters most want to see the next PM continue, even avoid Brexit. Well, Adam Hawksby is the head of levelling up at Onward, and he joins me now to talk through those numbers. Morning, Adam. Good morning. Were you surprised by the results of those polls? Because levelling up is often dismissed as a Westminster buzzword when you ask people about it in focus groups the response is often patchy some people say leveling up isn't that something you do in a computer game other people say you know what's it all about is it about making the south poorer were you surprised then by the level of public awareness and the fact that on top of that people really want to see it come to fruition so when we do focus groups around the country on levelling up, we, we do sometimes hear people say, as you say, you know, is that from a video game? Is that what you do to just fix potholes? But actually, the majority of people come to a point where they say either it's about closing a gap between north and south or it's about making my area better. Uh, and what's really interesting about that, particularly listening to the comments you have from folk like Ben Houshin, is that making my area look better is often about really practical stuff. The fact that my high street or town centre is getting worse, the fact that antisocial behaviour is on the rise, the fact there aren't enough local jobs. And so I think the reason it's so popular is because it speaks to the desire to just see conditions improve. They want less of narrative and rhetoric and press release and more of just tangible delivery to make their patch better. And do you think that's... When people say in polls such as yours that they want to see levelling up 
achieved? Is that because they haven't seen enough evidence of it already? Is you know, is it because they keep hearing these words leveling up and they look at their high streets and they look at the boarding up, boarded up shops and the and the hoardings and think, well, hang on, we've heard a lot about this. Now it's time for the government to get on and deliver. Well, I think it's it's always been popular. I mean, the the really ironic thing is is this leadership campaign is being conducted as if the Tories marginally won or lost the 2019 election. I mean, they won it with an absolutely enormous majority. And a lot of that was due to levelling up. So it's not surprising because it remains as popular as it was then. The risk is that if the word and the phrase keeps appearing hollow, if the candidates keep talking about levelling up and nothing changes, then it will suddenly become a sort of noose hanging around the Tories' neck as opposed to an electoral asset. And that's something you to some degree saw with a big society back in 2010 that soon became something that was used to mock the Cameron and the coalition government as opposed to something they could proudly boast of and levelling up cannot go that way because it would be electoral disaster for, for the Conservatives. And I think the point you made there about the 2019 election and the different diagnoses of that result the candidates are offering in this leadership race is a really astute one because in 2019, Boris Johnson brought together a new Conservative coalition, didn't he? With voters in the North who hadn't backed Tory, the Tories before and voters in the South who were very traditional Tory voters. Now, the Tories are bleeding, are hemorrhaging votes in both directions now. Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak are in the South. Is it possible that they can stay true to the levelling up mission at the heart of Boris Johnson's 2019 manifesto and all the rhetoric and policy commitments around that while keeping hold of voters in what we now are contractually obliged to call the blue wall too? So it's really important to understand the electoral geography of this. So the normal midpoint of Conservative voters uh, pre-2019 was in Buckinghamshire. The geographical midpoint of the 2019 gains was Sheffield. And work that we've highlighted, uh, we've reduced, uh, produced over this year, showed that really the Tory heartlands are no longer the sort of home counties. They are Staffordshire. They're kind of areas in the West Midlands, actually. And while there isn't some sort of very fragile blue wall that might flip overnight in the next election, there has been what we termed um, a blue drift. So some of these seats are slowly moving away from the Tories. That means that you can hold on to some of those seats in the South in the next one or two elections, but the massive opportunity is to retain and even gain seats in the Midlands and the North, where you have natural Conservatives that want to see delivery. So that, that has to be the focus in the next election. That's all we've got time for on today's Red Box Politics podcast. Matt will be back next week. Until then, you've got me. Tomorrow, we'll be doing Dish United Kingdom. Until then, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.